Chapter 12 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. Science in Short Chapters by W. Mateo Williams. Chapter 12 The Formation of Coal. In the course of a pedestrian excursion made in the summer of 1855, I came upon the Aachen Sea, one of the lakes of North Tyrol, rarely visited by tourists. It is situated about thirty miles northeast of Innisbruck, and fills the basin of a deep valley, the upper slopes of which are steep and richly wooded. The water of this lake is remarkably transparent and colorless. With one exception, that of the Fountain of Cyan, a deep pool forming the source of the little Syracusian River, it is the most transparent body of water I remember to have seen. This transparency revealed a very remarkable subaqueous landscape. The bottom of the lake is strewn with branches and trunks of trees, which in some parts are in almost forest-like profusion. As I was alone in a rather solitary region, and carrying only a satchel of luggage, my only means of further exploration were those afforded by swimming and diving. Being an expert in these, and the July summer day very calm and hot, I remained a long time in the water, and, by swimming very carefully to avoid ripples, was able to survey a considerable area of the interesting scene below. The fact which struck me the most forcibly, and at first appeared surprising, was the upright position of many of the large trunks, which are of various lengths, some altogether stripped of branches, others with only a few of the larger branches remaining. The roots of all these are more or less buried, and they present the appearance of having grown where they stand. Other trunks were leaning at various angles, and partly buried, some trunks and many branches lying down. On diving I found the bottom to consist of a loamy powder of gray color, speckled with black particles of vegetable matter, thin scaly fragments of bark and leaves. I brought up several twigs and small branches, and with considerable difficulty, after a succession of immersions, succeeded in raising a branch about as thick as my arm and about eight feet long, above three-fourths of which was buried, and only the end above ground in the water. My object was to examine the condition of the buried and immersed wood, and I selected this as the oldest piece I could reach. I found the wood very dark, the bark entirely gone, and the annual layers curiously loosened and separable from each other, like successive rings of bark. This continued till I had stripped the stick to about half of its original thickness, when it became too compact to yield to further stripping. This structure apparently results from the easy decomposition of the remains of the original cambium of each year, and may explain the curious fact that so many specimens of fossilized wood exhibit the original structure of the stem, although all the vegetable matter has been displaced by mineral substances. If this stem had been immersed in water capable of precipitating or depositing mineral matter in very small interstices, the deposit would have filled up the vacant spaces between these rings of wood as the slow decomposition of the vegetable matter proceeded. At a later period, 
as the more compact wood became decomposed, it would be substituted by a further deposit, and thus concentric strata would be formed, presenting a mimic counterpart of the vegetable structure. The stick examined appeared to be a branch of oak, and was so fully saturated with water that it sank rapidly upon being released. On looking around, the origin of this subaqueous forest was obvious enough. Here and there the steep wooded slopes above the lake were broken by long alleys or downward strips of denuded ground, where storm torrents or some such agency had cleared away the trees and swept most of them into the lake. A few uprooted trees laying at the sides of these bare alleys told the story plainly enough. Most of these had a considerable quantity of earth and stones adhering to their roots. This explains the upright position of the trees in the lake. Such trees falling into water of sufficient depth to enable them to turn over must sink root downwards or float in an upright position, according to the quantity of adhering soil. The difference of depth would tend to a more rapid penetration of water in the lower parts, where the pressure would be greatest, and thus the upright or oblique position of many of the floating trunks would be maintained till they absorbed sufficient water to sink altogether. It is generally assumed that fossil trees which are found in an upright position have grown on the spot where they are found. The facts I have stated show that this inference is by no means necessary, not even when the roots are attached and some soil is found among them. In order to account for the other surroundings of these fossil trees, a very violent hypothesis is commonly made, namely that the soil on which they grew sank down some hundreds of feet without disturbing them. This demands a great strain upon the scientific imagination, even in reference to the few cases where the trees stand perpendicular. As the majority slope considerably, the difficulty is still greater. I shall presently show how trees like those immersed in Akinsee may have become and are now becoming embedded in rocks similar to those of the coal measures. In the course of subsequent excursions on the fjords of Norway, I was reminded of the subaqueous forest of the Akinsee, and of the paper which I read at the British Association meeting of 1865, of which the above is an abstract, not by again seeing such a deposit under water, for none of the fjords approach the singular transparency of the lake, but by a repetition on a far larger scale of the downward strips of denuded forest ground. Here in Norway their magnitude justifies me in describing them as vegetable avalanches. They may be seen on the Songnefjorn, and especially on those terminal branches of this great estuary, of which the steep slopes are well wooded. But the most remarkable display that I have seen was in the course of the magnificent and now easily made journey up the Sturfjord and its extension and branches, the Singsfjord, Sunelfsfjord, Nordalsfjord, and Geirangerfjord. Here these avalanches of trees, with their accompaniment of fragments of rock, are of such frequent occurrence that sites of the farmhouses are commonly selected with reference to possible shelter from their ravages. In spite of this, they do not always escape. In the October previous to my last visit, a boathouse and boat were swept away, and one of the most recent among the tracks that I saw reached within twenty yards of some farm buildings. 
what has become of the millions of trees that are thus falling and have fallen into the norwegian fjords during the whole of the present geological era in considering this question we must remember that the mountain slopes forming the banks of these fjords continue downwards under the waters of the fjords which reach to depths that in some parts are to be counted in thousands of feet it is evident that the loose stony and earthy matter that accompanies the trees will speedily sink to the bottom and rest at the foot of the slope somewhat like an ordinary subaerial talus but not so the trees the impetus of their fall must launch them afloat and impel them towards the middle of the estuary where they will be spread about and continue floating until by saturation they become dense enough to sink they will thus be pretty evenly distributed over the bottom at the middle part of the estuary they will form an almost purely vegetable deposit mingled only with the very small portion of mineral matter that is held in suspension in the apparently clear water this mineral matter must be distributed among the vegetable matter in the form of impalpable particles having a chemical composition similar to that of the rocks around near the shores a compound deposit must be formed consisting of trees and fragments of leaves twigs and other vegetable matter mixed with larger proportions of the mineral debris if we look a little further at what is taking place in the fjords of norway we shall see how this vegetable deposit will ultimately become succeeded by an overlying mineral deposit which must ultimately constitute a stratified rock all these fjords branch up into inland valleys down which pours a brawning torrent or a river of some magnitude these are more or less turbid with glacier mud or other detritus and great deposits of this material have already accumulated in such quantity as to constitute characteristic modern geological formations bearing the specific norsk name of urn as lardalsurn sundalsurn etc describing the small delta plains at the mouth of a river where it enters the termination of the fjord and which from their exceptional fertility constitute small agricultural settlements bearing these names which signify the river sands of lardal sundal etc these deposits stretch out into the fjord forming extensive shallows that are steadily growing and advancing further and further into the fjord one of the most remarkable examples of such deposits is that brought by the stur elv or justadal's elv which flows down the justadal receiving the outpour from its glaciers and terminates at marifjorn when bathing here i found an extensive subaqueous plain stretching fairly across that branch of the Listerfjord, into which the Storelv flows. The waters of the fjord are whitened to a distance of two or three miles beyond the mouth of the river. These deposits must, if the present conditions last long enough, finally extend to the body and even to the mouth of the fjords, and thus cover the whole of the bottom vegetable bed with a stratified rock in which will be entombed and well-preserved isolated specimens of the trees and other vegetable forms corresponding to those accumulated in a thick bed below 
but which have been lying so long in the clear waters that they have become soddened into homogeneous vegetable pulp or mud only requiring the pressure of solid superstratum to convert them into coal the specimens of trees in the upper rock i need scarcely add would be derived from the same drifting as that which produced the lower pulp but these coming into the water at the period of its turbidity and of the rapid deposition of mineral matter would be sealed up one by one as the mineral particles surrounding it subsided fossils of estuarine animals would of course accompany these or of freshwater animals where instead of a fjord the scene of these proceedings is an inland lake in reference to this i may state that at the inner extremities of the larger norwegian fjords the salinity of the water is so slight that it is imperceptible to taste i have freely quenched my thirst with the water of this sur fjord the great inner branch of the hardanger where pallid specimens of bladder-rack were growing on its banks in the foregoing matter-of-fact picture of what is proceeding on a small scale in the aachen sea and on a larger in norway we have i think a natural history of the formation not only of coal seams but also of the coal measures around and above them the theory which attributed our coal seams to such vegetable accumulations as the rafts of the mississippi is now generally abandoned it fails to account for the state of preservation and the position of many of the vegetable remains associated with coal there is another serious objection to this theory that i have not seen expressed it is this rivers bringing down to their mouths such vegetable deltas as are supposed would also bring considerable quantities of earthly matter in suspension and this would be deposited with the trees instead of the two or three per cent of incombustible ash commonly found in coal we should thus have a quantity more nearly like that found in bituminous shales which may thus be formed namely from twenty to eighty per cent the alternative hypothesis now more commonly accepted that the vegetation of our coal fields actually grew where we find it is also refuted by the composition of coal ash if the coal consisted simply of the vegetable matter of buried forests its composition should correspond to that of the ashes of plants and the refuse from our furnaces and fireplaces would be a most valuable manure this we know is not the case ordinary coal ash as bischoff has shown nearly corresponds to that of the rocks with which it is associated and he says that the conversion of vegetable substances into coal has been effected by the agency of water and also that coal has been formed not from dwarfish mosses sledges and other plants which now contribute to the growth of our peat bogs but from the stems and trunks of the forest trees of the carboniferous period such as sigillari leptodendra and coniferae all we know of these plants teaches us that they could not grow in a merely vegetable soil containing but two or three per cent of mineral matter such must have been their soil for hundreds of generations in order to give a depth sufficient for the formation of the south staffordshire ten-yard seam 
all these and other difficulties that have stood so long in the way of a satisfactory explanation of the origin of coal appear to me to be removed if we suppose that during the carboniferous period britain and other coal-bearing countries had a configuration similar to that which now exists in norway namely inland valleys terminating in marine estuaries together with inland lake basins if to this we superadd the warm and humid climate usually attributed to the carboniferous period on the testimony of its vegetable fossils all the conditions requisite for producing the characteristic deposits of the coal measures are fulfilled we have first the underclay due to the beginning of this state of things during which the hill slopes were slowly acquiring the first germs of subsequent forest life and were nursing them in their scanty youth this deposit would be a mineral mud with a few fossils and that fragmentary or fine deposit of vegetable matter that darkens the carboniferous shales and strips the sandstones such a bed of dark consolidated mud or fine clay is found under every seam of coal and constitutes the floor of the coal pit the characteristic striped rocks the linsty or linsey of the welsh colliers is just such as i found in the course of formation in the aachen sea near the shore as described above the prevalence of estuarine and lacustrine fossils in the coal measures is also in accordance with this the constitution of coal ash is perfectly so its extreme softness and fineness of structure its chemical resemblance to the rocks around and above and below and oblong basin form common to our coal seams the apparent contradiction of such total destruction of vegetable structure common to the true coal seams while immediately above and below them are delicate structures well preserved is explained by the more rapid deposition of the latter and the slow soddening of the former as above described i do not however offer this as an explanation of the formation of every kind of coal on the contrary i am satisfied that cannel coal and the black shales usually associated with it have a different origin from that of the ordinary varieties of bituminous coal the fact that the products of distillation of cannel and these shales form different series of hydrocarbons from those of common coal and that they are nearly identical with those obtained by the distillation of peat is suggestive of origin in peat bogs or something analogous to them to the above i may add the concluding sentences of the chapter on coal in lyell's elements of geology speaking of fossils in the coal measures he says the rarity of air breathers is a very remarkable fact when we reflect that our opportunities of examining strata in close connection with ancient land exceed in this case all that we enjoy in regard to any other formations whether primary secondary or tertiary we have ransacked hundreds of soils replete with the fossil roots of trees have dug out hundreds of erect trunks and stumps which stood in the position in which they grew have broken up myriads of cubic feet of fuel still retaining its vegetable structure and after all 
we continue almost as much in the dark respecting the invertebrate air breathers of this epoch as if the coal had been thrown down in mid-ocean the early date of the carboniferous strata cannot explain the enigma because we know that while the land supported a luxuriant vegetation the contemporaneous seas swarmed with life with articulata mollusca radiata and fishes we must therefore collect more facts if we expect to solve a problem which in the present state of science cannot but excite our wonder and we must remember how much the conditions of this problem have varied within the last twenty years we must be content to impute the scantiness of our data and our present perplexity partly to our want of diligence as collectors and partly to our want of skill as interpreters we must also confess that our ignorance is great of the laws which govern the fossilization of land animals whether of low or high degree the explanation of the origin of coal which i have given in the foregoing meets all these difficulties it shows how vast accumulations of vegetable matter may have been formed in close connection with the ancient land and yet as if the coal had been thrown down in mid-ocean as far as the remains of terrestrial animals are concerned it explains the nearly total absence of land shells and of the remains of other animals that must have lived in the forests producing the coal and which would have been buried there with the coal had it been formed on land as usually supposed it also meets the cases of the rare and curious exceptions seeing that occasionally a land animal would here and there be drowned in such fjords under circumstances favorable to its fossilization end of chapter twelve